We're talking about the Passover meal. We're in John chapter 13 in that life of Christ. We're in that last few days. What we understand about this Passover meal, it's in that last week of Jesus' life. We call it the Last Supper. It is their Paschal or Passover meal. And just to remind you of a few things about it, okay, just keep this in mind. Um, when John is starting this meal, as he starts recording it, John chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, he wants us to recognize a few things before he gets into the details. And to me, this is just very, very important information in verse 1, 2, and 3. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should part, depart out of the world, having loved his own in the world, loving them unto the end or to the fullest. It's not the idea of, of a time, it's a, of a quality or a quantity. The supper being ended, da da da, da and Judas having, uh, the devil having put in his heart to betray, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he was come from God and was now going to God. So what we have here is Jesus portrayed right before he does it. And that makes a big difference in this meal. As we understand that John is writing to people and saying, here's how great Jesus is, his knowledge, his authority, his compassion. And that means his statements, his, um, his reaction, his actions. It all just seems to really highlight, magnify what he says, what he does during that meal. And so in your, in your thoughts, as you keep on going, remember we're talking Thursday evening, it seems to be the most reasonable time for this meal. It was, um, it was already the night before Judas, or two nights before, Judas has met with the Jewish leaders and plotted to betray Jesus. So on Tuesday evening, as Jesus had finished out the preaching, then was going towards what we think either the uh, Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, in order to just rest, or he headed back to Bethany. That's when Judas paired off and he went and met with the Jewish leader. So he's had about 24, 38, uh, 48 hours to be planning when he's going to betray Jesus. So this is all, that's already been occurring. Um, Peter and John had been told early in the morning, get everything prepared, plan, prepare, wash the dishes, buy the food, and so one of them, would, we would think, would have been more of the host and should have been the responsible person to do the foot washing when they entered into the room. But on the way or so shortly before the meal starts, they have an argument. The disciples are discussing which of them is the greatest, and we've pointed out that probably was premeditated by the idea that whoever sits at different spots, that's going to be showing. In Jewish thinking, sitting at the table would show your position as far as where you stand with people. People. Um, and, and by the way, did churches used to have positional pews? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's certain people sat in the front, certain people sat in the side, certain people sat in the balcony, and it was arranged by position. And so this seating at the meal in that culture wasn't that odd. They would argue over it. It wasn't something that, that if we were in a culture that position and, and placement in this room, uh, there could be arguments over that. That happened with the disciples. Then so the meal is starting, and sometime after the meal got going, Jesus, according to uh, John chapter 13, he gets up, and he does something that was missed. And we understand all that because we know the foot washing was a cultural practice. It was supposed to be done by the lowliest in the room, was supposed to do it to the others. It was an act of service, refreshing. They had bathed already, remember, in preparation for the Passover. They had to walk to the site where they had it so they would just refresh, wash their feet. That was very common, very typical. And so uh, Jesus is going to use the occasion. John chapter 13, verse 17 is a key phrase. As he begins his discussion... Down in verse 13, if you know, what's your Bible read? John 13, 17. If you know, what's the next two words? Okay, it's a plural. Okay, and so he said, and literally the if should be since. Since you know these things, what's in the rest of the phrase? Happy are you if you... Okay, and so he's given them some type of an indication, and that's the foot washing. He's given them some lesson... But we would say, wait a minute, that verse says there's less sons, okay, that he's giving them. And so if we were to just summarize that yieldedness, Peter letting Jesus do whatever he wants with his body, that was one lesson. The lesson that once you're bathed, you don't have to bathe, you just need to rinse off. And he said that because he knew not all of them were clean because one was going to betray. So there's a spiritual lesson about the cleansing and the washing, uh, not being born again, but having to have daily confession. And then that whole lesson that he gives, whatever I've done, you do to one another, serve one another as I've served you. And so he has multiple lessons that he's teaching both by his instruction and by his example. Then he goes on and in the conversation, and this whole conversation gets quite involved. John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is his conversation 
uh, that the other Gospels don't record. And it's his instruction in these few hours that he has at the Passover. One of the things he does right after foot washing is he identifies the betrayer. We already looked at it. If you look at John chapter 13, he's going to make it clear that one is going to betray. Now this isn't the first time he said this. This week he's already made it clear. One of my disciples will betray me. And so he makes that statement. The response is, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then Peter says, ask Jesus who it is, and Jesus says, it is the person to whom I give the sop. We talked last week that that idea that sop was one of the progressions of the Passover meal. You would dip in bitter herbs and then you'd pass the, pass the items around. The sop was one of those uh, breads wrapped up uh, with meat inside, and it could be dipped in the sauces and to have the bitter and the sweet sauces to all be pictorial. And usually the sop was given to, in, to one person in favor, or at the the indication by some is that it was given to everybody at the table. That would explain why this didn't give Judas away. If it is given, okay, if I were to give it to Jim and then to uh, Michelle, but I gave it to him first. That could be what he was talking about. Uh, Or did he give it just to Judas and the others didn't catch it? We don't know. But Judas gets up and he leaves and this is his cue to get out of here. Now the rest of the teaching is without Judas. And Jesus starts off right after that. Look at the next couple verses, 31 and 32. He talks about the Father now being glorified which again, this this isn't random thoughts. This goes together. His death, burial, and resurrection his crucifixion, it was part of glorifying God. Now it's all the ball is rolling. I'm going to be glorifying God. And remember, this is why he came. And so he knows and he's distressed over it, but at the same time, this is the will of the Lord and this is how we're going to glorify God. And then he makes a statement. This is where we stopped two weeks ago. He makes a comment that kind of is an unusual comment. It's down in verse 34. And he goes on, he says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that you love one another. My question that I left you with is how come he calls this a new commandment? Because in the Old Testament, we have that statement made that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how is it that he calls it a new commandment if it's already been commanded? We stopped last time and said, think about it. Did you think about it? I'm sure you had lots of other things on your mind over Easter. But why do you think he says, here's a new commandment, but it's already been commanded? Any thoughts? You don't think it's the command it's of love, it's the level of love? To be willing to sacrifice? Yeah, see, I, either, either he is, these guys never got it, and, they, you know, and it's new to them, which that doesn't seem to make sense. Or what he's doing is he's establishing a new standard, a new level, um, a new criteria, which makes more sense to me because he says, love one another, what's the passage say? as I have loved you. He makes the standard. And so, or it's a possibility of both that he's just reiterating this whole idea. But he's leaving now. In, think through this meal. Have they been, have they up to this point in this meal, have they failed in their love towards one another? How so? Okay, they've been arguing, okay, over who's the greatest, Okay. Nobody's washing the feet, okay? So they've kind of blown it in the very simple areas of life. And so um, you, you, you and I can understand. We, do we repeat things as parents to our kids when they don't get it? And after we say it two times, we never say it again. No. It, it happens time and time and time again, even when they're, they're out of the house, we say, didn't I tell you? Um, so that, that happens. And so Jesus is discussing with it. These fellows have been having a problem, okay? They haven't loved as he has loved. And so remember, if he is the standard, it's already stated in this passage, he loves them fully, okay? It's stated in the passage that he is loving them to the point of sacrifice. Remember, remember just a few weeks ago, he preached, I, la- I do what with my life? I lay down my life because I, what is he, the good shepherd. Okay, and so he's already, he's already made these statements. And uh, think about it, love people as I have loved, he knows what's happening. And still, how did he love Judas? 
He extended to Judas, even though he knew Judas was going to betray. Even these guys who are going to betray him, he's washing their feet. Even to the point that he's going to serve in a very humble way. So just by what's been discussed to this point, he says, you're to love this way. You're to love practically, not just verbally. You're supposed to be willing to do and take care of the little things in life. And so then he makes a statement that for you and me, this is a critical, crucial statement, verse 35. Verse 35 makes the comment, he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one towards another. Does this, does this aspect of how we relate to one another, does it impact the spread of the gospel? Yes. Okay, let me, let me give you a negative illustration. When you see commercials that are done by the Mormon church, what do they usually push, up, push in their commercials? Family? Social? Is that appealing to people? It is. It is. Okay? So Jesus is saying, let's recognize that in a world where in the world does the world lack love one towards another? I'm talking in general. We, the, the world loves family, loves friends. And Jesus has already preached that to the Pharisees. You invite to your home family and friends and people who can do you good. But who do you normally ignore? The Pharisees, who do they would, would they ignore? The poor, the sinners. Is that commonplace in society that it is look out for, number? Okay, is there a lack of compassion beyond the, the usual sphere? I think that's a truism, okay? And we Christians, we've got it down pat. No, we don't. Okay, and that's why he says, be careful, work at this area, because this should be a distinguishing mark for us. And he says, by this the world will know you. Doesn't that seem to say to you that the world will be drawn towards real genuine compassion? Why is that? Because who doesn't want to be accepted? Who doesn't want to be appreciated? And so that can be a drawing card, that can be a pull for the gospel, and so he's, he's highlighting this idea. Uh, l- let me just throw this out. Does it make a difference in something like here, in modern day worship? Does it make a difference how we interact with one another to people who come and visit in a worship service? Yes, no? What do people often look for when they, when they are visiting into, a, into an assembly of believers? Friendliness. Friendliness. It's huge. It's huge. And, and we do that as believers. You know, so that, that idea of reaching out and is so, so important. And it can have a tremendous impact. I think I shared with you just a couple of weeks ago, um, my daughter-in-law's father is unsaved, but because of watching how their church has gathered and rallied around the, uh, his daughter and um, my son and their family needs, he's been so impressed. He says, there's something different about that group of believers. And I want to see and I want to learn what is different about those people. Those acts of love make a huge difference. And so Jesus says, you got to do it. This new type of love, remember what he says, is for all of us. Oh, by the way, can I make an observation? Okay, if you have love one towards another, does, implies it's not automatic. Okay, it's something that we have to act upon. And so it has to be active. So he makes that comment, and the disciples, we've already said, they've fallen flat on their face. So let's make some observations, just up to this point, up to what he's taught. As terrible as Jesus' death was, he says it's something very good. It's going to glorify the Father. So is it possible that God can use terrible situations to bring glory to himself? The answer is... Absolutely, positively. Okay, the greatest goal in all that we do, therefore, is to glorify God. It is not our comfort. It is not our ease. It is to bring glory to God. And by the way, this fits our our purpose for living. Okay, all things were created for thy for thy pleasure. They are and uh, were created. Uh, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the. Okay, that's to be our goal. God is glorified when we do what He wants us to do, even if it doesn't feel good. 
This is how God gets glorified, and we're supposed to magnify him. He can be glorified by how we act in difficult situations. This is critical for you and I to understand. This is our purpose. This is our calling from the Heavenly Father is that we glorify him even in difficult moments, even in, in, uh, in tough times. God can use even evil circumstances to bring glory to himself. We don't want to hinder his exaltation in any way, and we can hinder it by the way we respond, by the way we rebel by the way we resist what God is trying to take us through and, and groom us and, and uh, form in our hearts. Real biblical love is not an option for us to practice. It's a command, okay, that he says, okay, you do this. It doesn't depend on my mood. It's not supposed to depend upon whether you treat me right. I'm supposed to be responding to, with love even if the circumstances aren't real positive. Let's make another st- statement. It is one of the greatest arsenal, tools in our arsenal for witnessing is how we treat one another. I think it's a terrible thing that if all of a sudden you and I were to be arguing and fighting and then turn around to that person who's been observing it and we give them a track and say you need to get born again to be just like us. That would be a horrible way of witnessing. And so he's telling us that that compassion, that love, that patience with one another is critical. Biblical love is measured by Christ's love. He's the standard, not you and I for one another. He's our standard for how we love. Real biblical love is to be shown to all believers in our sphere of influence in life. And it is not supposed to be based on others first. What I mean by that is, okay, I will show biblical love to you if you're nice to me. If you show love to me, then I'll be kind to you. Whether or not somebody shows compassion or kindness or patience with us, we're supposed to love as Christ loved, that even though he knew what they were going to do, he was still compassionate towards them. We should be overflowing with such compassion as well. Let's go on to another thought. Biblical love is seen in everyday conduct. Everyday conduct like serving one another, doing the lowly tasks. It would be like apologizing, asking for forgiveness. It would be like forgiving those who offend us. These are everyday acts. Sacrificing for others in your home, in your church, in some small ways. It's sacrificial love. It's doing for others. It's serving others. It's trying to be Christ-like in other ways. Now, he goes on in his conversation, and it gets a little bit more uh, intense here. He says, okay, Simon Peter... uh, Let me catch something. Um, Verse 33. In the midst of his comments about love and glorifying, he made this statement. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you seek me. And as I said to the Jews, whither I go you cannot come, so now I say to you. So he's talked about being glorified. Okay, through his death. And he made comment, I'm going to be leaving you. You can't follow me. But when I'm gone, I want to make sure you love one another. Now, Peter, in that conversation of those three verses, Peter got hung up. And Peter only heard one statement that Jesus made. He didn't hear so much the glorifying. He didn't hear so much the love of one another. But what struck him was, I'm leaving and you can't come. And that got a hold of Peter's attention. You know, how, does this ever happen to you? You're in a conversation. They're saying several things, but one item stands out. Okay? Okay, I'm preaching away. I'm speaking. And I'm talking about how we should pray and how we should witness. And I'll say in the middle of that, in just a couple minutes, we're going to finish. The couple minutes probably stuck with you. Okay? We catch little one phrase. And so that hang, we get it. We get where, okay, that, that catches our attention, which is, that's normal for all of us. Well, it did for Peter. And Peter then, he's listening. He's saying, yeah, okay, we should love. Yeah, God's being glorified. But I, I got a question. And he raises his hand, asks the question. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus says, whither I go, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down. And this is the time when the other Gospels record that Jesus said, oh, you're all going to be stumbled. And Peter says, I will never stumble. And yet everybody else shall deny you. I won't deny you. In fact, I will die for you. And Jesus says to him in the other Gospels, you you will deny me before the cock crows. You're going to deny me three times. Okay. Now, John is expanding, giving us the setting, and here's, here's where it happened. Okay. Jesus, he says, I will lay down my life. He says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Really, really, really? Verily, verily, I say unto you, the cock shall not crow until you have denied me three times. And then he goes on and says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, why does he say it at that moment? Okay, Because he's been telling them, one of you is betraying me. He is telling them, I am leaving. 
they're, they're really upset. And he's saying, let not your heart be, literally means to be pulled apart. And it says, let not your heart be troubled, literally says, stop letting yourselves be pulled apart. You're being traumatized by what I'm teaching, what I'm saying. You're not hearing everything. And he's saying, now just slow down. And let not your heart be, uh, be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so that's part of this whole conversation. You're going to deny me, Peter. Well, no wonder he says, Peter, calm down. Calm down, don't let your heart be troubled. Because you just predicted that I'm going to deny you. I don't think I will. And you said, yes, you will. And so Peter's, you know, Peter's in disarray. He's uh, discombobulated. He's confused at this moment. So Jesus is going to say, stop, stop, guys. Stop, slow down. And he's going to give them this instruction, okay? And so it's important that what we catch is that, that comment. And Peter's, Peter's just thinking like you and I would think. Why can't we go with you? And, um, you know, we're, we're going. And, and remember, the other gospels say, John doesn't, but the other gospels say all the other disciples said the same thing. So I suppose between chapter 13 and 14, right in between there, that's when the others speak up and they say, well, we won't deny, none of us will deny you. Not I, not I, not I. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, you're all going to deny me. And so they have this conversation. And Peter is insistent Jesus is wrong. By the way, Peter's got a bad meal going. He's got a bad hair day going. Okay, early in the meal, what did he tell Jesus? He was wrong about what? About washing his feet. You can't do this, okay? And now he's telling, no, you're wrong about this as well. So Peter has, you got to admit something. Peter's a brave soul, to keep on telling Jesus he's wrong. Because Peter has already said, what about Jesus? Thou art the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I think you're wrong about a lot of things. I, I can't imagine believers saying that to God. Do we ever think that about God? You, you got this wrong, Lord. Okay. You, you, you say that you'll never allow us to be tempted above that we are... Abel. And so he's, pack, he's loading you up with all kinds of trials, and it's like, Lord, I can't handle this. Well, my word says you can. I don't think you got this right, God. Okay, so we, we have those moments, too. We just probably do it in a more cultured fashion, You're not as brazen as Peter. And so Peter is very adamant. He's, you know, and so Jesus is saying, stop, 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 stop. Guys, stop, okay? Let's slow this thing down. And now he's going to answer his question. The question is, where are you going that I can't come with you? Well, we know the answer, John 14. Now, now, pretend you're hearing it for the first time. Somehow, just kind of put out of your mind all your knowledge and say, okay, you're sitting there. He's saying he's going somewhere. You are saying, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. Oh, by the way, do you remember just a week or two before where he says, I'm going down towards Bethany where Lazarus has died? And Thomas responds and said, Lord, the last time we were there, do you remember that conversation? Lord, wait a minute. The last time you went to Jerusalem, what did they do to you? They tried to kill you. And Jesus said, we got to go there. Okay, we, we go while there's light. And Thomas said, do you remember his statement? Let's go. We'll die too. So these guys have the bravado. They have the you know they have some great courage to a to a great degree, and so they but they, but they don't want to leave Jesus, even if it means a life threatening situation. Peter doesn't want to let them go. You know, let me let me put this in modern language. You have a loved one. You don't want to let them go. You know they're going to heaven, but you don't want to let them go. Yes, no. Okay, we we want them to be with us. That's what they're doing to Jesus. This is the one they've given up everything for. We don't want to let him go. Oh, yeah, he said that he has to die, bury, and resurrect. He'll come back again. Okay. But do you understand the feelings? You know you're going to see your loved one again, but you don't want to let him go. You know you're going to be together for all eternity, but you don't want to let him go. Does that make you a terrible person? No, that's just reality of life. That that's the feelings that these guys have. They have these strong, strong feelings because if he leaves, everything's in disarray. So they've got, you know, we're going we're gonna to establish this kingdom. You know, you've talked about the kingdom and we have asked about the seats and can we be there? And you said we're going to be there. And so let, let's not talk about the negative stuff. Let's not talk about you die buried. It's like when your family gets into a conversation and you want to get to say, let's talk about planning a funeral. 
What is the common reaction if one of the, one of the parents or one of the spouses says, let's talk about funerals today? Uh, not now. Not now. I don't want to talk about it. Why not? It's an unpleasant thought. We don't want to talk about those things. Well, this is the conversation of that Last Supper. Jesus is trying to direct them towards this. They want to go this way. And it's not that they're, they're bad people. They're like us. They don't want to talk about the uncomfortable. They don't understand everything that it's involving. They love him. They don't want to let him go. And so Jesus starts talking about it. Now in John 14, which you all know, okay, in John 14, look down to verses 1, 2, 3, 4. He's going to give a basic summary of heaven. Keep in mind, this, up to this point, if you were a Jewish scholar, you know very little about heaven. You know, as, as it's stated in scriptures, you know God lives there, you know the angels are there, you know that the enemy goes there and makes accusation, you, you know it's a beautiful place, but you're thinking more about the kingdom on earth. Okay, so you're not thinking heaven, heaven, and Jesus is going to give a little bit of a description, which, by the way, the New Testament expands upon and tells us that it's beyond explanation, it's beyond description. And so the biggest picture we get is in the book of Revelation that tells us about that kingdom, that heavenly city. But Jesus is just going to give a little little bit of a, a taste, a foretaste of exactly what heaven is like, and he's saying this on the heels, here's the, here's the key phrase. Stop letting your heart be troubled. He's going to repeat it. Jump down to John chapter 14. Jump down to about verse 28, 29, something like that. He repeats it again. Let not your heart be troubled. In this whole passage, it's all about comfort. It's all about hope. It's all about help when you're, dis, you're in disarray. This is, you know, you know, you tell people to read passages of scriptures when they're going through trials and troubles. What passages do you direct them to? What portions of scripture? Psalms? Okay. Philippians? This is a text that is purposely stated and designed to provide comfort to people who are going through trials, this, this whole John 14. And so he gives them a lot of positive, a lot of hope in the middle of let not your heart be troubled. You're being pulled apart. Your mind's going in 10 different directions. And, um, and understand, okay, this is the way we, well, some of us work, maybe not you, but some of us, that when crises comes for you, does your mind just start racing? Does it race? Does it slow down? Yeah, and is it hard to force it to slow down? What, what happens with sleep? Yeah, why? Because your, your mind is racing so much. And, and, the, and the reason you want to go to sleep is you want to escape. Because sleep is somewhat of a relief. Okay, And so you got this, you got this whole turmoil going. They've got turmoil. He's going to give them information that they need to think about in the middle of turmoil. And it's a lot of good information here. It's just tremendous helps and promises that he's going to give. Here, let's see if we can kind of summarize some of it. He's going to talk about his presence. He said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you. That's causing the turmoil. But at the same time, he's going to be very clear about he's present. That, well, look what he says. You believe in God, believe also in me. Question, do we believe God is here even though we don't see God? That's the essence of faith, is it not? We believe that there is a God even though we can't touch him. Jesus has just said, I'm going to leave. You won't be able to touch me, but you still need to believe me. Believe that I am still alive, that I am still around. Just like you believe God is alive and around. This is an important statement that he's making. He's talking about believing. By the way, what's interesting is the verb that he uses in this, in this phrase is, it can be translated both as a statement or a command. You believe in God, you believe in me. You believe in God, you need to keep on believing in me. Now, you, had, you know, which one seems to me, the one that seems more forceful and fitting is... You believe in God, you need to keep on believing in me. It seems to be the imperative or the command idea seems to be the stronger. Um, But let me remind you, he is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. 
So the idea of believing is that continuous trust, that continuous not faltering concept of just trusting me all the time. And just as we believe in God, that God's, we don't see him, you need to keep on believing Jesus Christ is there and he's around, and not have that thought. Remember in a couple chapters from now, uh, Thomas is going to say, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus comes into the upper room. And they tell him, we saw Jesus, we saw Jesus. And doubting Thomas says, I will believe you saw Jesus if I can touch him. Yeah, if I can physically touch him, then I know it's real. And, um, you know, and so we call him Doubting Thomas for that reason. Okay? And Jesus is saying in this verse, believe, even though you can't touch me, believe. Believe, keep on trusting me, which is critical, by the way, in the middle of let not your heart be troubled. And so his point is, you know, my, my lasting presence, my aliveness, and this is critical because he's going to die within the next 24 hours. You've got to believe that I'm still around even though you see me die on the cross or you have evidence that I've died. Then he makes a statement about the promises, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you. I'm not trying to trick you. So this is real. And so, now remember, you've got in the middle of trials and problems, he's saying, think about my presence. Think about my promise of where we're going, what's in the head. Remember, this is all in statement of I'm leaving. You can't come now. You can come later on. Okay, but don't be troubled. And so that promise about heaven, and he gives us a little bit of the details. It's obvious, these, these statements. Heaven's real. Heaven is a relevant place. What we mean by that is what we preached just a few weeks back. Heaven isn't made just for God. Heaven is, I build a place for you. Okay, it's relevant to us, someplace that we can experience. It's very roomy. It's God's home. Um, so the whole idea is then he says, and, and now, now think this through. I am leaving. I am going to go. You cannot come with me. But then what statement does he say? I will come again and... Okay, okay, I'm going to come back for you. And I'm going I'm to come and take you to where I am. That's, that's to provide hope. It's to provide help to these people, okay? And the idea is that we will forever be with him. So he gives them these promises. He gives them a third, uh, a third factor to think about, and that is what we would call his person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The statement is a statement of a declaration. Again, he's made dozens of them. He is one more time, and this is really critical. He has told them he's going to die, Okay, here's your dilemma. Here's your theological dilemma. You believe Jesus is God. How does God die? Okay, does that make sense? Okay, you and I have more information later on. But they're sitting there, we believe he's God. We believe he's God's messenger. He's going to die. And so he's reiterating for them, I am divine. Each one of these statements has to do with divinity. The way, the truth, the life, that whole concept that he is the only one, he's the entryway, he is truth incarnate, he is life, the one one who gives life. And so his whole point is, you got to be focused on me. In the middle of trials, focus on me. (laughs) That's so hard to do. In the middle of trials, what do we focus on? The trial. The trial takes over. The, in the middle of a loss, what do you focus on? The loss. And Jesus is saying, okay, those are normal, but you've got to change your thinking. Think about, I am with you, we're the future, and think about, I am in charge. I am, I am still God, okay, in the middle of these trials. And so this is critical thinking. Let's make some observations. Believers will face times when we are d- discouraged and challenged. It's going to happen. Believers are, do not have to be pulled apart by negative experiences. We do not have to just lose it. We don't have to fall apart. It, somebody just said to me, and I'm trying to think of the situation. It was just in the last uh, 24 hours. Somebody here made comment, how do unbelievers handle the trials without the Lord? It's hard enough as a believer handle. And so his whole point is we don't have to we don't have to live under the circumstances. We can rise above them. Okay. We we here's a, here's a thought. We help determine the inner peace. Now God gives it, 
But let's go back to where he says, believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. If we do not keep on trusting, do we abdicate inner peace? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So it's, it's part, of this, part of this is, you know, the coin is God doing and us doing. Jesus will be our greatest comforter in such moments, okay? When distressed, we should be focusing on him and his promises. Uh, another thought that when we're distressed, we need to be focusing on our future hope. That future hope that says there's going to be an end to all this. And quite frankly, all, of your, all your battles, all your sufferings, in a hundred years from now, they won't mean anything. Because in a hundred years from now, where are we going to be? We're going to be in heaven, okay? And our job difficulties, our neighbor difficulties, all those, you know, our, our physical health difficulties, our kid difficulties, they're going to be done. They're going to be over with. And we'll be in heaven, and it'll be glamorous, it'll be glorious, and it will be forever. That's a profound thought. I mean, just can we add to this? Some of you are going to have some fantastic reunions. And the best part of the reunion is you never have to say goodbye again. It'll never happen. I mean, the reunions are going to be phenomenal when we start thinking about it. So Jesus says, okay, keep this in mind. <clears throat> and we know this. Okay, this is, this is a, a gimme for all of us in this room. He is above all, and he alone is the only way into heaven. He above all is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He is the one who gives life. So we have all these comments made about Jesus by Jesus, and one day he says, I want to come back. I'm going to take you to heaven. You'll be with me forever. You and me, here's, here's our, our delight. Here's our fairy tale part of it is, wouldn't it be cool if he'd be today? I mean, it is beautiful outside. Yes? No? It's kind of on chilly side, but it's a beautiful day. And you stand out here and just look, and after the work that a number of you did, and the lawn looks beautiful, and the mulching looks beautiful, and it hasn't faded yet, and the trees out here, the dogwoods are just lovely. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It pales. This looks like a dump compared to heaven. Yeah, what we look and say, the beauty of it, it's just, Wow. I don't know. It would, it, you know. I love my home. I love these. I love it. You know this stuff, but it's worth giving up for heaven. It'll be a whole lot better, and it's real. That's that's the point of what he's getting at. So then, what happens is Philip speaks up, and um, I'm sorry, uh, I'm jumping down because Thomas has spoken. Verse five. I'm jumping down here where it says again. Jesus says, "If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. From henceforth you know him and you have seen him." And Philip speaks up, says, "Lord." Show us the Father. Just give us something more. You said you're leaving, but give us something to just carry us through. Give us something that will just, boom, you know, put us over the top. You know, oh, oh, by the way, was there anybody else in the Bible that said, show me God? Can you give anybody else that said, show me yourself? Moses, okay? Moses was going through some tough days, and it was, God, just let me see you, and it'll get me through. Now, none of you have ever thought this. I have. If I could just talk to you face-to-face -face for a moment and know exactly what's going on, it sure would be helpful. Okay? You know, if I just have a... You know, I know you speak through your word, but could I have, a, could I have one minute with you? Just a little bit more. That, that's kind of what Philip's doing. Philip is saying, just give us a little bit of that shot in the arm and it's going to carry. And Jesus, it, it's a remarkable conversation because Jesus has just made real statements of deity. I'm God, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he has just made another declaration. If you saw me, you saw the Father. It's a bold statement. It's, it's like, I am, in other words, in other words, you know, what's he claiming? He's claiming he and the Father are yeah, it's just, it's another claim to deity. It's very bold. And Philip's just like, well, give us a little bit more. And it seems to me this is the way Jesus is talking. That Jesus is like, I've been with you for two and a half years, and you still don't get it? Almost like that disappointment, that like, come on, guys, what more do I have to do? You know, um, when we were young and we weren't paying attention, my dad's favorite phrase is, you know, give him a clop across the side of the head. And he would do it. Um, but it would just be like, I won't do it to you, Brian. But it would just like, you know, give him just a, a, a quick, you know, backhand, just kind of, hey, come on, wake up. No, watch what you're doing. 
And um, yeah, you'd hit me back. Uh, your, your marine response, you know, just, you know. Um, so Je- it's kind of like Jesus giving him a backhand saying, come on, guys. I've been here for two and a half years and you still don't get it. And he makes these statements. He says, and, and these are strong statements. I mean, look what he's, what he's going to do. Have I been so long with you and you still don't know who I am, Philip? He that sees me has seen the Father. And how is that you say, show us the Father? Believe you not that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I don't, I, I, I've been telling you for two and a half years, I don't speak about myself. And he says, you want, you know, the works that uh, the Father dwells in me, just look at the works that we've been seeing. These are God works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. In other words, if you see me, you see Jehovah. Phenomenal thought. Just again, he's just, you know, I'm more than just a messenger. I am God in the flesh, and he's made that declaration. And by the way, John gets this, because later on, John writes this phrase, if you deny Christ, you deny the Father. He, he, he ties them totally together. This whole, this whole conversation strikes me, that the disciples are getting it. They're getting it. They're getting all this stuff. Do they understand it fully? No. When, when will it come together for them? Okay, let me see if I can, and I've made this goofy statement before. You know when we should do premarital counseling? About five months after they're married. You know why? We're talking about, you know, conversations and how to deal with tension. And the majority of people I talk to say, well, we don't have tension. Five months after you're married. Okay, let's have this conversation. Okay. Okay, yeah, then we'll talk about, you know, oh, we have this plan, we're going to, you know, we have it all planned on how we're going to handle finances five months after you're married. Now let's talk about how you handle finances, right? Because what happens in real life, by the way, how many of you knew exactly how to raise kids before you had them? Okay, and then what happens? Then you, then you have kids, and when do you try, kind of figure out how to, get, how to do it? I, I, think, I think it really comes together when they're gone. It really comes together. It's like, we should have done this. Oh, actually, excuse me. You should have done this, and you should have done that. Okay. okay. You know, it, it's kind of like after the fact, it all gels together because I, a couple of you said it. Experience. When did the disciples, it really start clicking everything that Jesus was saying? After he was gone. And remember that Judas gets up. What does it say? Judas gets up, but nobody knew what he was doing. But afterwards, they knew it was Judas. Okay. So all of this that they're telling us, you and I get, because we have, we're post. We're post everything. Okay. Jesus is saying these statements, and these are profound, powerful statements that are just, you know, you know, sandal knocking, knocking off the sandals. They're, they're just potent stuff. And... They get later on. And so they're recording this. I find what's amazing, maybe, maybe you don't. I find how detailed John is in this conversation. I mean, don't tell her, but I can't remember half the thing Deb says to me two hours after she says it. Okay. It is called sel- selective memory. Okay. Well, why are you laughing with me? You, you don't, Joyce, he doesn't do this. Oh, it's not two hours, so two minutes, two minutes. Okay, yeah, okay. So glad that you sit right there, Rich. That just helps me. Everybody else hides. They go to the far corners. Against the, they, but, you know, we have this, these guys, they remember the stuff, okay? And so Jesus is telling them, this is who I am, this is who I am. And again, in context, let not your... Okay, this is all involved with that. I'm leaving. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm God. I'm God. Guys, come on. You don't know where I'm going, but I'm God. I'm telling you all these things. It's, you know what it strikes me as? You know, they want more. But to remember at the end of The Wizard of Oz, right after this scene, what happens? Toto jumps. Yeah, okay. Dorothy gets out, chases after Toto, and what happens to the, to the Oz? He goes away. And Dorothy's standing there all sad, and she's saying, I can't get home, I can't get home. And Glenda, it's amazing how I know all these details. Um, <laughs> Glenda, it's my kid's favorite show when they were little. So, uh, so Glenda comes up, and she basically says, you've had the ability to get home 
and it's involving with the yeah, it's kind of, that, this is exactly what is happening here. G, these disciples are saying, give us God, give us God. And Jesus is saying, he's been with you all this time. You don't need anything more. You just need me. I'm it. And then he goes on. Now watch based on that. Then follow the next statements. After he's just told them, I am God. I've been with you. I'll stay with you. Now watch what he says. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I shall, uh, that I do, what's your Bible read? You're going to do the same works, and not only will you do the same works, but they will be what? Greater works than these, because who I am. I go to the Father. Now, seriously, folk, does this verse mean we will be as powerful as Jesus? It is preached that way in some churches. Some groups will preach, if Jesus raised the dead, we, so can I. If Jesus can heal leprosy, so can we. So some will jump on this verse. Is, is, that, is this a blanket statement that says, you are as powerful as Jesus Christ? Does that kind of make you feel the, the heebie-jeebies? To kind of equate yourself to Jesus, does it make you feel uncomfortable? I don't think that's what he's doing. And yet, is there a sense in that? Okay. So again, he's just defined, he's God, he's God, he's God. And by the way, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you powerless. But now remember, if he goes, so do all these neat miracles. Correct? Okay, from their point of view. Okay, have they been able to do miracles, by the way? They have, when they've gone out preaching. But he's given them the power. So if he leaves, does all of their power, does all of that phenomenal, does that resistance of the demons that they've been able to have at times, does that all go with him? Is it kind of like, you know, your neighborhood kids, remember when your neighborhood kids and you're playing, and the, the one kid you didn't want to get ticked off, when you were playing ball was no the the big guy is true but i was thinking more of the guy who had the ball and the bat and all the equipment cuz if the guy get if i get him mad we don't play anymore cuz what does he do he takes his stuff with him okay so is jesus taking all of his stuff with him this is an important comment he's not taking all the stuff with him you guys aren't going to be left impotent. What you're going to be left here is greater works than these that I've done. You're going to be able to do. Now, I don't think we're greater than Christ, but I think what he's talking about is this concept, that we will still be able to do great things. He is in the, with the Father. He's going to assist, just like he did when he sent them out and he assisted them. He's going to assist them to do great things. But the greater things, I think, aren't necessarily the deeds it's the scope. Does that make sense? Okay. Because are Jesus' deeds and his scope confined geographically? To a degree. To, were, they, were they in his life's ministry? Okay. W within a few years after he's gone, what happened to that? It, it went where? Everywhere. Everywhere. And by the way, did Jesus have thousands and thousands and thousands of followers, committed followers, during his life ministry. Committed followers. Yeah, I, I'm going to tend towards he had followers, but they weren't committed. Okay, right? They came for what reason? The miracles. Okay. And he didn't have that many followers because they all cheered him on Sunday, but then what happens come Friday? The crowd, kill them, kill them. Okay, so the committed followers. Will there be an expansion of committed followers within the next few years? Will it expand? Let me, let me remind you about something. In Jerusalem, he is being opposed, he will be opposed on Friday by the crowds and, in particular, who's leading the crowds? The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. In the book of Acts, do many in the crowds get saved? Within 50 days at Pentecost, many of them start getting saved. What about the leadership? 
some of them get saved as well. It's talks, is it chapter 5, verse 7? Chapter 4, verse 7 of Acts? It says that many of the leaders okay, will get saved as well. And so I think that's what he's referring to is this idea that we're going to see an expansion and it's going to be contagious. More so than in his ministry because actually his focus of his last year and a half was upon how many? Twelve. Training them. Okay, and so he, the, the, it's just a phenomenal statement. Then, now, now watch the next phrase, the next phrase. He says, I'm going to let you have power. I'm leaving. My person will be with you. I will leave you power. And then he, verses 13, 14, 15, look what he gives him. He says, and whatever you ask in my name, what's his promise? I will do it so that the Father is glorified. Then he repeats it. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, what's he say? What's it mean to you? Does Jesus have a stuttering problem in verses 13 and 14? What's it mean to you then that he repeats the same concept twice? He's reinforcing, this is real. This is real. Come on, guys, you've been slow to get it. Get this. Whatever you ask, I'm going to do. Um, I said, whatever, I, whatever you ask, I will do. And so he makes this statement that is just a powerful, powerful statement that you and I better hang on to. And it's, again, it's, it's just a far-reaching problem. Here's a question. Is this a carte blanche statement that he will promise to do anything and everything we ask? Absolutely anything we ask. What's that? That's, you're putting a condition on it, okay? Your condition is it has to be within the Father's will. Where do you get that? Yeah, but where do you get it out of the passage? Yeah, I think that's it. That's it. Two, two statements there that do it. One is you have to ask in my name and also that my Father may be, okay, those two go together. Okay, they, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's absolutely true. We can't ask for anything. He's giving conditional statements. The conditions are slipped in there. You have to ask in my name, and then this is how the Father will be glorified. So we cannot be expecting something to be done that we ask ju- that doesn't glorify the Father. For instance, Lord, bless this heist that I'm planning this week. Lord, help me to get a good grade as I cheat on the test. We, we, can't, we can't do that. That would be totally outside of glorifying God. Lord, please guide and direct as I seek to divorce my wife. Give me wisdom on how to do it. Really? But by the way, do those prayers ever get prayed? Absolutely they get prayed. Okay? Help me to be able to not get caught as I steal something from the employer. Okay, that, 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 okay, now here's the question I have for you, okay, that he's making the statement, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Does it mean that every time we pray, prayer, every time we pray, we have to say, in Jesus' name, amen? Is that what it means? That's how it's practiced in many of our circles, that if I don't say it just a certain way, do you remember how I'm going to tease and close with this? We used to do baptisms. Pastor Binkley had a coined phrase. Uh, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in. Okay, so my kids were when they were little, they were, they were baptizing each other in the pool. Okay, and, they were say, and one of them said, you didn't say it right. It wasn't real because you didn't say it the way Pastor Binkley says it. Okay, and they, so he said, okay, this is just regular Lebanon water. Remember, Earl used to do that all the time. You know, it starts saying, this is regular tap water. And so they, they, were, and they had it in their mind, if it wasn't stated a certain phrase, it wasn't good. Okay? And I mean, we adults would never do that. But if somebody prays around you and doesn't say, in Jesus' name, amen, what's your reaction? Did it work? Is that what it means? Pray in Jesus' name. Let's pick up there for next week, okay? Thanks.